You're listening to Tiger's Eye, episode 21. We await the morning. In our boat crossing, many of our number died of thirst or hunger, or from sickness, or their wounds. Holding on to a degree of hope became extremely difficult. We confided in one another quietly, and took strength from that. But since the plan had been made, and there was little to do save for maintaining our vessel, a deadly quiet settled upon us. We conserved our energy, obeyed the Red Chief at the wheel when she instructed us in how to prepare the boat for winds or waves. Shira did her best to prepare us for what her homeland would be like, instructed us not to show aggression, and to behave with self-restraint, lest we scare the lions of her cities. I learned new words in many languages. I learned the immense river was called the sea. The boat was a ship. Its name was the Stalwart Whale. The captain was Beatrix. The word for healer in Shiva's language was doctor. Her country is Albion. The port we will arrive at is called Leon, and the material that our chains are made of is called Ironite. Now, we that remain alive sit in a gray stone cell, ironite shackles upon our paws, counting the moments until we are led to our deaths. In my case, I am turning over and over in my head where, during this long journey, I could have done something different to change the outcome. I should have run with Miguel at the ancient city when Haka finally tracked us down. Sprinting flat out, we might have evaded him and the lions who were just around the corner. Now Haka sits with his back to the two of us. I no longer care to ask him if his relentless pursuit was worth the trouble he took. We could attempt a wild escape at the last moment, refuse to go quietly, cause the lions an immense amount of trouble. I have gathered from quiet exchanges with Dr. Shara, however, that this kind of behavior usually results in torture of the most cruel and vicious kind before the end. 
They are going to hang us. This means tying ropes around our throats and dropping us from a height until we strangulate. If we are supremely lucky, the fall will break our necks and minimize our suffering. That is the best we can hope for at this moment. Miguel sits close by to me. I draw him in and hold him to my chest, warming him in the freezing, misty air. Crows call as they watch us from the stone walls. His body shivers uncontrollably, and his tiny pads grip at my sides. I rub my paw in a circle around his back and squeeze. A greater dread has been growing in my mind. This threat is insurmountable. These lions have no hearts, or at least the ones that do seem unable to affect change. What will prevent them from sailing across the sea tomorrow to take more of my family and from the families of all those around me back here to their cold, wet land? My death and Miguel's will be little and unimportant. What happens tomorrow will be immense, unstoppable, the end of everything we know. I smell something. Lions are approaching, but oh so quietly. A thrill of excitement shoots through me as I realize their sneaking cannot be for official reasons. I pick up a familiar scent, more than one in fact. And then Dr. Shira is standing at our door. She wears a long cloak with a hood, as do her companions. I pray to all seven deities right now that I am not dreaming and that they are here to take us away from this place. A key is produced. I know what they are called now. The other cats, sitting up, remain silent. Shira and the others steal into our cell and begin unlatching. I see golden paws under the black cloaks, deftly moving more keys about until we are all stretching and rubbing our sore wrists and ankles. The one who unlocks mine is not Shira, but Matthews. He says nothing to me, but is gentle and swift in his movements. When all are liberated from their first bonds, Matthew stands in the center of the room and circles it with one pad, gesturing to all of us, then points out of the open cage door signs for walking, then points to himself, 
and finally holds a paw over his mouth. We haven't much time. They will be waking soon. I look around at the remaining cats. Shala is still here. As are Glam, Liseth, Aresh, Merrick, Rickish, and many more. I try counting to twenty and get most of the way there. One cheetah cannot walk. He says he will slow us down and to leave him behind. An immense cat bears him up and slings him over his broad shoulders. I attempt a nod of approval towards Haka, for it is he, but I am coldly ignored. We creep through the morning chill, our ears sharpened to sounds of approach. Our cloak of darkness is waning as we reach the guardhouse where a dozen lions lie slumbering, their bodies dotted with blue quills. We avoid the front gate, but are taken down to the catacombs. One of our rescuers would appear to know this fortress very well. He travels ahead holding a lamp. We exit via the waterways and creep through the subterranean tunnels and sewers of Leon. I heard details as a cub of the cities our tribes used to inhabit. In my recent travels, I may in fact have been standing above ancient versions of what we now pass through. The odors are overpowering, and vermin run freely through the filth-caked channels around our paws as we push on through the choking darkness. I keep one pad on Miguel, partly to prevent him stumbling and partly because I know Haka is still behind me, and I simply cannot trust him. Still, after all of this, I am saddened that among this group of strangers, the cat closest to me has become such an enemy. Eventually, our rescuers stop and lead us up a series of ladders and through alleyways, telling us over and over that we must not make a sound. Fortunately, the stench of the underways has entirely masked our exotic scents, and we are now so filthy that our bright coats are dulled and barely perceptible. We stop in at a drafty house and are handed ragged clothing to wear. Miguel receives a small cloak that completely masks him from view. Then we are led up wooden steps to a broad, dusty room lined with drapery. Dr. Shira steps across and peeks out. I sidle over to her as the other cats spread into the room. Are the Cloaked Ones your friends? They are now. Look, out there, all of you, do not be seen. She turns and says the same in several variations, along with signing. We crowd to the glass pane and behold, stretched out before us, 
an enormous yard of ships. They are skeletal now, but it is clear what is being built. They stretch on as far as we can see. And in the morning light, we behold who is doing the building. Leopards, tigers, panthers. All of our kind, sweating and heaving, preparing the wood and metal. What, what is, is this? All slaves. This is where you would be today. We must save them. That is impossible. We are too few. Free them, and the lion warriors would would kill every last one. They are lost to you, for now. They build ships to sail to your lands. Ships to bring the lions? War ships. A pale of despair threads through the room. Soft growls. We must warn our people. Yes, you must. Matthew steps in and speaks in quiet but heavy tones, signing as best he can along with it as his words are translated through the room. Shira is right. That is why we save you now. When you are gone, these lions will forget you. You have a chance to tell your tribes what is coming. For it will be soon. We shall do more than that. A change has come over the great panther. He paces to the middle of the room and looks about him. He glances at me and then imitates the gesture I made, circling his pad around the room then gesturing a wider circle with his paws, bringing them together at the front. One tribe, under one moon. Without this, we will not have strength enough to stand against them. We do not roar, but nod in grave agreement together. Matthews, your people will not thank you for this. But we do. We share the same felinity. I have faith that you would do as much for us. We are taken back down through the underways and onward to the docks where Matthews has a few trusted friends. As a ship receives its passengers, we are moved into the hold. There will be little room to move, not much to eat, but no chains, no cruelty. And at the end, if we reach our shores, we will be free to go. Matthews converses with the captain, a mustachioed lion of gruff demeanor named Wessex. I speak with Shira quietly, my body shuddering with relief. I can scarcely find the words, signs, or expressions to match the moment. Thank you. Thank you, Shira. You are a good lion.
It was... right. What will become of you? I do not know. I did not plan for all of this. It is mostly Matthews and his companions. I simply lent them my aid. If we are found out... Come with us. You will be welcomed. Honored. Thank you, but no. As long as I am not found, I can do more good here. I will not run and hide. I will... stay and hide. We will not forget you. Nor I you. She does supremely well at concealing her fears. But in her glance, I spot a cub in the grip of terror. I lay a paw on her shoulder. Oh, there is one more thing. Look. She reveals a bag that was slung by her side. Tipping the contents among the former captives, we see many of our possessions that were displayed in the room of argument when the immensely broad lion appeared. I find the armlet that my mother made me, but cannot find the one from Miguel. We search through as many other cats remove pieces belonging to them. It is gone. But at the bottom of the pile we do find the small cross that Miguel wears. He takes it, kisses it, and puts it back around his neck. My spears are not there. Neither are his claws. But Shala recovers his garnet necklace with gratitude, clearly thinking of his tribe. I recall mine and stroke my armlet. But something occurs to me, and I ask Shira. The Grand Lion was pointing at Miguel. Did he want him for himself? He did. But Beatrix spoke to him. What did she say? She said... She said the ape creature was very messy, so the Grand Chief declined to keep him. Why? Did she want him back? Perhaps. You do not think so? Beatrix is a bad lion. She is selfish and cold and heartless. But I suspect she is not all bad. In fact, now that I recall, she was the one who introduced me to Matthews. Miguel leans against me as I take Shira's paws in mine. She is timid and not used to this contact. I breathe gently upon her forehead. Whether we meet again or not, you are my sister. I... Thank you. I... I must go now. Um... Matthews and I need to disappear, back into our heartless country. It is not all heartless.
You have been listening to Tiger's Eye, written and edited by Alex Shaw, with a full cast. Haral, performed by Maureen Foley. Shala, performed by Matt Wardle. Dr. Shearer, performed by Laura Kate Dale. Quincy P. Matthews, performed by Alistair Stewart. The main theme was Agent in Shanghai, composed by 1M1 Music of Shockwave Sound. Flight Hymn, performed by Ross Bugden, whose work can be found on his YouTube channel. Water Lily and Whimsy Groove, performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, whom I am now helping to support via Patreon. Many Soundscapes by Tabletop Audio, whom I am also now helping to support via Patreon. New Century's special Patreon sponsors and contributors this month were Ian and Megan Hopwood, Nick Grugan, Joel Robinson, Russell Osborne, David Garcia-Abril, Maureen Foley, Ben Hayes, Stefan Gardinia, Kieran Datchler, Lorraine Chisholm, Livio Dela Cruz, Scott Corsine, Dan Mayer, and Erish Travers. And New Century Book 2, Secret Rooms, is now available alongside the Cartographer's Handbook on the Kindle Store. And huge thanks to Dan Mayer for his unbidden five-star review. So he's been the first person to say anything about it on Amazon and deeply encouraging words in there. As well as everyone on the forum who has been enjoying Tiger's Eye. And let me know that despite the sudden shift in world and tone, this has become a favourite story so far for many listeners. And of course... Another tone shift is on the way with Arlington, which will follow the final episode of Tiger's Eye in a few weeks' time.